Good evening and welcome to this special edition of The Foreign Desk with Lisa Daftari. Tonight, we have put together an impressive power panel of experts to help us navigate through all the speculation about what our foreign policy and national security will look like under a Biden administration. What will stay the same? What will change? And what will it look like if it is decided that President Trump will continue on for another four years? And to help us make sense of all of this, I've decided to call upon two of the most respected experts in the field. Bijan Kian, a twice confirmed advisor to the White House under three consecutive administrations, reporting directly to Presidents Bush and Obama and serving as the deputy lead on President Trump's landing team for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, also an Ellis Island Medal of Honor recipient and globally recognized expert on the economy and national security. We also have Walid Ferris, professor, author, political commentator, who has worked on both the Romney and Trump presidential campaigns. He's a Fox News contributor and the author of a gazillion books, the latest one called The Choice, comparing the foreign policies of Trump and Obama versus Biden. This is, book actually captures the conversation that we're about to have before uh, the election. Um, this was something that, that I recommend everybody pick up even now because I think it very, very well summarizes the differences between the two. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you so much for being with me tonight. Thank Good you. Good to be with you, Lisa. It's been over uh, a week since our election and just days after the media uh, decided to crown Joe Biden president-elect, yet we have not received an official announcement from the uh, Electoral College. But half this country is off celebrating while the other half is mixed. Some have surrendered to the idea of a Biden presidency while others feel torn and cheated, and they feel that there was an egregious amount of fraud that happened in this election. Um, Dr. Kian, I want to start with you. Uh, you served under Bush, Obama, Trump. I mean, what, what's the historical um, perspective on all of this? I mean, other than it happening in 2000 um, with Gore and Bush, can you compare it to anything that has happened before? Where do we go from here? What does it mean historically for our country? And do you actually believe fraud happened? I actually don't think there are a lot of similarities between what we are witnessing tonight uh, in America in this election and what happened in 2000. 2000, we had one state, one county, very specific, and uh, it was a very narrow focus on that. But of course, uh, you know, 37 days, uh, Mr. Gore was uh, the president-elect uh, called by his friends, of course. And uh, no, I think there is another parallel that if we look back deep into our history, we might go back to 1876, 100 years after signing of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Ulysses Grant, General Grant is in the White House. The White House is mired in corruption allegations and uh, it wasn't a nice environment for for President Grant. He decided he was not going to run for a third term and that opened up the, uh, the way for two governors. One uh, was Mr. Hayes of Ohio and the other was Mr. Samuel Tilden from New York. Samuel Tilden, a Democrat, Hayes, a Republican. In those days, uh, in those days, uh, you needed 185 electoral votes to become president. And uh, as uh, as the process went on, Hayes brought in 165, and Tilden brought in 184, one short of the limit. So. Hayes protested and said, 20 of those votes are mine. And uh, it got through a complicated process and committees were formed and went back to the committee, a judge from Supreme Court who happened to be a Republican, Hayes was a Republican, came in and uh, made the decisive vote. Hayes became president and uh, the winner of the election or presumed winner of the election Tilden had to concede. Tilden decided that for the good of the country, he was not going to protest. And that's how it ended. We had President Hayes. I see a lot of parallels there, although even that is not an exact uh, 
may be analogous to what we're seeing here because we want to be really objective about it. You have to care about these very important differences. Um, you know what, what I remember just, just using, uh, apart from that example, I was not very good at the statistics when I was going to school. And my professor called me one day and said, you don't change this. Uh, you, you don't belong here. But I persisted and I tried to learn it and uh, I, I managed anyway. So one thing I learned in the statistics is that if you have data that suggests that it never rains here, never rains here, you put your hand outside the window. And if your hand gets wet, you better find an explanation for that or else you're going to question the data. So anecdotal evidence does matter. When you go to Pennsylvania and you see what's happening there, you ask yourself a question. Did the miner, did the miner in Pennsylvania just voted for somebody who wants to take his job away, bread on the table for the family, out the door? Did he vote for this guy? You ask that question, it's just like putting your hand out of the window. Did, did that miner actually decide to put his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren into debt to the tune of $11 trillion. Mm -hmm. Did that happen? It's hard to believe that. So we do have a problem. And people say to me, Obijan, it's un-American to place doubt in the election process. You shouldn't mm -hmm. do that. And I'm saying, I reached out to, you know, call a friend, the lawyer friend of mine. I said, they're telling me not to put doubt in the election. What should I say? And the lawyer friend said, well, tell him it's un-American to see violation of the law and stay indifferent. It's more un-American to stay quiet when you see a violation of the law, especially when it's happening about the most sacred principle of right. democracy. So I'm comfortable questioning it, and I have decided I'm going to wait until December 14th or January 6th or 3rd or the day that officials come out, and I'm right behind President Trump because President Trump is not defending himself. He's defending me, my rights, as an American. I am an American. I'm protected by the same Constitution, and I care about it, and I feel responsible. So that's it. Yeah, and you know it's it's unfortunate because we don't the, the rest of the country doesn't see it that way. We have fifty percent of this country, and I and I generalize obviously, that doesn't understand that if cheating happened on this side, this time in four years it might happen to against you and against your candidate. So um, transparency is for the best, you know, uh, is for everybody in the nation. And you know, I want to get more specifically into the agenda of, of uh, the, the Biden, the, the potential Biden administration. I want to be very careful because I don't want to call him president-elect. Um, it's not out of disrespect, but because it just has not been formally announced yet. And we will refer to him as such going forward in this program. Um, That's wise. Dr. Um, yes, thank you. Dr. Ferris, I want to turn to you. Um, you know, the Biden administration has not, or the, I should say the campaign, at first, they had no platform, no platform. Their entire platform was that they weren't Donald Trump, and they were able to get away with that. And um, now that as we get closer and closer to uh, a, the, the, the potential that they may um, be in, in the White House, um, they're putting out an agenda and not shy about it. But it seems like their only agenda is to go down the list of Trump's accomplishments and hit undo, 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 undo. Um, for, we, we reported on this at the foreign desk that his team promised to do the, the following on the very first day, the first day in office, rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, reinstate DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival, rejoin the WHO, the World Health Organization, and repeal Trump's travel ban. So um, in addition to uh, repealing tax cuts uh, that Trump instated and reversing the Mexico City policy, which um, it restricts international funding for organizations that promote abortion. Is it just me or is it that they just want to sign back on to any acronymed organization that has been a uh, taxpayer's uh, money sucker? Um, they want to basically reverse anything that Donald Trump you know, uh, signed onto or signed off of. Um, what is this? Is this just an about face? Is this just to spite uh, Donald Trump? I mean, what is their agenda? What, how could you summarize this, this platform? 
Well, Lisa, in, in, in my perspective, I'd like to go to a higher altitude and then go backward to look at the genesis of it. So, and, and my conclusion, which I serve right now, is that we are dealing with an agenda that is two decades old. It's post-Cold War divisions that occurred in the United States, and more specifically, post 9-11. So uh, Mr. Biden is not the first candidate who moves in that direction. He's the extension of President Obama when he was a candidate, and both were an extension of Secretary Kerry when he was facing off with George Bush. So I see it from a historical perspective. I look at what's happening in those campaigns in my own quick history. Uh, I had no interest in campaigns, but in 2004, it's very important to understand how we can understand today's uh, drama that exists. Uh, President Bush was basically going forward with the defense of America against the jihadists, against you know uh, the threat of Iran. Uh, it was a national security issue. The 9-11 Commission provided us with a, a platform to, uh, to launch our foreign policy uh, from. And then you have the uh, candidate from the other side, basically, who came and wanted to undo every single move by the Bush administration, if you recall what we were doing in Iraq and what did we do in uh, Afghanistan, uh, the fact that we are fighting an ideological war. Remember, it was President Bush who started it. He did not complete it completely. So that was the first campaign. I actually supported President Bush, not on the ground of pol you know, ideological, socioeconomic, but on that simple national security ground. If he was dislodged in 2004, many things would have happened in America, even worse than those that exist now. Then in 2008, we had, you know, McCain. I, at the time, was with Romney because his vision at the time was more advanced in terms of using the right terminology. That was my view at the time. Mm -hmm. And our opposition to Obama, to President Obama, uh, was that he is coming with an agenda to stop all the efforts by the United States to defend itself, to defend the free world. We, we failed at the time. We had eight years of uh, Obama policy. And in 12, we tried again, this time with, uh, of course, with, with Romney. And we failed because Obama's agenda was, uh, you know, to, to take us to the other direction. He was preparing for the Iran deal already in 2012. Now, I am, I am developing this to explain what is the actual difference between how we in the field, and I think uh, Bejan as well, we look at the national security component first, and we look at the other foreign policy, socioeconomic, and every other aspect of, of, of the, the matter. And I thank you as well in your foreign policy, uh, Lisa, in your policy work. So in 2016, candidate Trump came to stop an agenda that has been developing from 2008. It was an agenda that was going to go towards the Iran deal, partnership with the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, partnership with the radical left-wing uh, Marxist of Venezuela, Cuba. So it was clear that was a big clash. Now, in addition to that, President or candidate Trump at the time got a support from a mass number of Americans who were pushing back against that Obama agenda and found in Trump the one who is capable of doing it because there were many candidates in the platform in 2015 and 16. But Somehow the public felt that Trump can do it. He can mobilize them to defeat that other agenda. So in my book, as you just mentioned, I compare eight years of the Obama-Biden agenda and then four years of the Trump agenda. It's very clear they are going in two different directions. So now we are in 2020, mm -hmm. and I'm going to bypass the, the, the electoral constitutional problem that we're having right now. I could opine on it later. But what we're looking at now is comes January, end of January, we, the American public will have to look at two different paths, extremely different, radically different. If Biden is the occupier of the White House, that to me is the third term of the Obama administration, period and simple. The same themes in foreign policy, and they have already made statements that in few, in few weeks or months, there will be a return to the Iran deal. In right. two months, there will be a, a, a change of policy uh, with regard to the Arab coalition, which unnerves me. And of course, there would be a different approach to the Arab-Israeli uh, peace process, which I could uh, expand on. So if I summarize, I would say 
the battle now, the constitutional and legal and electoral battle is not just a technical one, who won and who didn't won. This is going to lead us to a choice that the American public needed to make, uh, to, to make. They did it, but we don't know what did they do. That's why what's happening right now is crucial that we count every single vote. It's not just a game between two classrooms. It's a, it's a, a challenge between two views of the nation. And that's why we have to be very serious about to know exactly who the American people has chosen. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting to, um, you know, put those two two options, the two choices, as you called the, the name of your book, side by side. And I think, you know, it wasn't lost on the American people on both sides. So this is probably the most important uh, election between two different paths for America, two completely different paths for America. But unfortunately, I don't think the uh, supporters of Joe Biden understood the choice that they were choosing between. It was falsely depicted by the media as between love and hate, between lightness and darkness. Um, but, you know, very, very, very uninformed and, and very, very um, superficial in, in that regard. But, you know, it's interesting to look at what our enemies are counting on in with an incoming Biden administration. And uh, Mr. Kim, I'm going to come back to you on this because I know that you you travel, you just came back from Europe, but um, more more than that, you almost you travel virtually to Iran every single day with um, you know speaking to people inside the country, knowing what they want. One of the things that's so in, so infuriating, as I, I'm sure the three of us can agree on, is how the media depicts, you know, what the Iranian people want, or you know that this is a Muslim ban, the travel ban, not that it ha includes countries like Venezuela and North Korea, you know, or you know talking about you know the um, the, the like minimizing the the uh, Abraham Accords, for example, all of the the foreign policy gains and accomplishments of this uh, administration minimized to almost nothing. But uh, what I want to ask you specifically is. Um, this week, for example, we, we've been very busy at the Foreign Desk because they've given us a lot of material to cover. Um, Iran, uh, Zarif, for example, said to the Arab neighbors, he tweeted, Trump's gone. Now show allegiance to Iran or else. He basically threatened them to mm -hmm. say, there's going to be a reset here and your reset is going to you know, make Iran the regional power. They're going to be able to go back to their uh, hegemonic uh, agenda. Uh, likewise, the day before, we, we, we reported on a story where Iran is seeking Trump-era compensations under an, a Biden administration. So uh, Iran's leaders have already said, you better make it up to us. You know, don't the American people see this, Mr. Kian? I mean, what what is the Iranian regime banking on in a Biden administration? And why are they so excited to get Trump out of the White House? Well, there are a lot of people who are excited to get Trump out of the White House, and the Iranians uh, are not alone. Uh, you know, you talked about how our enemies, uh, America's enemies, are thinking about us, but I like to go back to America's friends, our NATO allies. Uh, I like to go back to how Germany has responded to this, for example, and pick a very specific example out of that. You talked about uh, contact with people in Iran, you know, it's very apparent to me that the voices from Iran are overwhelmingly supporting President Trump because President Trump has stood up. They divide the history of Islamic Republic into 38 years. A good friend of mine just did an excellent analysis uh, on this. Said there are two periods, 38 years and then four years, four years of meaningful diplomatic engagement, he called it. Yes, the maximum pressure campaign is painful for the people of Iran, but it has worked. And now let's take a look at what's in the best interest of America. And let's take a look. I like to take it from where my dear friend, learned friend, Dr. Ferris, Walid to me, um, ended his talk of returning to JCPOA. Well, um, I have good news. And the good news is, I've been studying the path to reversing the withdrawal from JCPOA, and I'm happy to share with you, I'm sure Dr. Farris knows this very well, it's not so easy. There is bad news for a possible Biden administration. If they begin day one with executive orders and all the tools 
in their toolbox to reverse the actions that have taken place and at this time are being launched at a very, very effective speed from Mr. Pompeo's office, Secretary Pompeo's office, every week there's going to be new sanctions coming on. Now, this is happening at a time where the treasury of the Islamist Republic in Iran, as I call them, Islamist Republic in Iran, not the Islamic Republic of Iran, they have an empty treasury. They don't have a lot of money. Yeah, they bought a lot of gold and placed it in different places, but it's hard to access. It's hard to turn that into cash. Banks don't work, and it's not easy. Now, let's say a miracle takes place. Let's say tomorrow morning, all these sanctions are lifted. Ask yourself a question. First of all, an economic one. Where is the banking system in Iran? Who is going to open letters of credit? Which bank is left with even a a symbol of credibility in Iran? The whole fiscal system is broken. The whole financial system is broken. Institutionalized corruption is going to infect any institution instantly. Standard Charter, just pay the big fine. Deutsche Bank knows how that works. They pay the big fine. Banks care about their reputation. Mr. Kerry, Secretary Kerry, uh, went around to, after he left office, went around to Europe encouraging banks and businesses to do business with Iran. They didn't. They didn't. Instincts that, the, you know, the, the thing that was supposed to replace the banking protocol for money exchanges didn't work. Why? Because businesses don't listen to politicians. They work for their shareholders. Shareholders tell them, don't damage that reputation because if you damage it, I'm not going to put any capital in your company anymore. That's how they work. Banks don't work to order of politicians. Mr. Kerry failed. Mr. Biden, in a possible Biden administration, has a very big challenge. The other thing that gives me comfort real quickly is that Mr. Biden has already picked up a number of professionals. You know, if Bill Burns and, you know, Blinken and others, they think differently, maybe from the way Waleed and I see the world, but they care. I'm sure they care. And they will be, there will be cautious about America's interest. I don't think, I don't think it's possible to copy and continue Obama because America is alive and President Trump is not going anywhere. President Trump is going to be a voice, is going to stay in there. And, you know, I'll say to you and your your viewers here that there are a lot of people who are going to stay with President Trump and voices are going to be heard. And White House and National Security Council is not going to have the freedom in whatever they want to do. They will not have a free reign because America will be watching them. There is another bit of good news. You know, I wrote a piece some time ago, 700 words, and said, resumption of normal relations with Tehran is bad for IRGC's health. What that means is that, look, IRGC has turned into a smuggling operation, a dirty business. Why? Because of the sanctions. Because they have gotten into all kinds of corrupt. You remember Ahmadinejad called my smuggler brothers hmm. kindly and we know they have they have secret jetties uh, secret transportation all of that zarif you know foreign minister of islamist republic publicly publicly said you know uh, i'm just a foreign minister i don't know what happened money got lost and all that of course he has very little credibility why because he lies a lot, real lies, big whoppers, and he can't get away with them. But most importantly, most importantly, I don't believe the Islamist Republic is going to come back and, you know, just raise the chalice of poison just like Ayatollah Khomeini did one more time and do some acrobatics. I don't think it's so easy. They will not do that. And... I don't believe that's healthy for them. They will die if relations are resumed with the United States. I see that as a kiss of death, Lisa. 
just just to push back um far be it from me i'm gonna say i'm gonna be the devil's advocate or the, the mullah's advocate in this case um how about this scenario um it's the same it's the same by the way it's yeah, the same. Mullah's it devil same. Even worse, I'll have to take a shower after this segment just because I said that. Um, yeah. I put myself into the mullah's shoes and I say to you, when they're looking for compensation uh, for a Trump era, that means they're biting sanctions. They'll have to receive double the amount of cash that they received the first time around. Then, then uh, all the U.S. has to do under a Biden administration is look the other way, uh, you know, minimize our relationship with Saudi Arabia, allow the Shiite influence to increase again in the region, um, you know, back off of the Abraham Accords and, and our relationship with Israel, move the uh, embassy back to Tel Aviv. I mean, I'm, the dominoes start to fall. And then what? This gives Tehran the upper hand in some capacity, does it not? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. I don't think that it's so easy for Iran, for Islamist Republic in Iran, to be able to fly through these scenarios one right after the other in that fashion. So I am pushing back on you as you in the shoes of the devil, which is the same as the mullahs. <laughs> but I believe it's not so easy for them. These actions, and, and Walid will help you out here, Every action in foreign policy has a price, and that mm -hmm. price must exceed, must exceed the limit to be, uh, must, must be below the limit to be a valid option. Because if the cost of an option exceeds its benefits, it's it, rationally speaking. Mm -hmm. Are the molars rational? I believe they're not all that irrational. Oh, they understand add, it has a cost. It so has a cost. So not so easy. One second. Sorry. I want to add one one little extra bit to it. This week, sure. the mullahs already in calculation, in calculation of what I what the scenario that I painted out, the mullahs released, I don't know, 700 something political prisoners. These are young kids who were probably just rounded up because they went out to a protest. So these are the peaceful protesters, peaceful protesters. These are them. They release them to show, you know, a benevolent side. Um, now we have elections coming up in Iran in a few months. They'll allow a so-called, you know, the same thing, wolf in sheep's clothing kind of candidate to come out again and say, we're, we're, we're changing our face. I've always said this, you, you both of you know this, um, the, the, the biggest challenge to the Iranian regime, the Achilles heel, is the 80 million people that live in that country. So yeah. if that pressure comes off because they back off a little bit, because they have, again, this is the additional dominoes that I want to add, because the pressure is off of them, they relieve a little bit of the pressure off of the people. And they say, oh, now that Biden's in office, we don't have the Trump sanctions. So you can get the pharmaceuticals you need. So you can have meat no. at a decent price. So no. you can get no. eggs at a decent price. Go ahead. No. Dr. Yeah. They, they didn't do that because Biden is... No, they didn't do that. They did that because Secretary Pompeo said, look, don't think twice about it. We're going to be here in office until January. I'm going to bombard you with sanctions. Bombard you with sanctions. Specific sanctions were announced against retaliation against protesters, shooting pro 1,500, actually 1,500 people, according to themselves, this is their official reporting, many, many more were killed by them. Secretary Pompeo said, don't do that, I'll put sanctions on you. They're not doing that in response to Biden. They're doing that still to Trump, and they're trying to be flexible and showing that I'm very happy for people are released. I hope more of that happening. Uh, but it, I don't believe they're responding to, to Biden. You know, this Mr. Zarif is such an immature, such an immature, such a childish guy. He comes on TV and he says, you know, when I was in New York, when I was in the mission, I met a lot of senators. Now they've gone to higher places, you know, mm -hmm. talking about Biden. And mm -hmm. his smile is, you know, ear to ear. A diplomat doesn't do that. It's just like the kid that goes to school, brags about his dad being a general or whatever, just like that. He is a child. He's been in this business a lot, but his mind is still the Persian mind, the same mind that works in the bazaar. Oh, let's just be friends and do things. That's not how things work. Walid would tell you that even though Biden smiled and shook hands and all of that when he was a senator, he will not, he will not be the same buddy-buddy with Mr. Zarif. You know, he will learn the lesson 
that it doesn't work like that. Biden is an American. You know, I will fight until the last <laughs> breath I have to make sure that President Trump is reelected. But if Biden is elected, he will be my president. And I will fight. I'll be a backbencher then. And I'm sure my friends will join me. So, no, I push back on that. It's not so easy. There is no good news for Tehran. Tehran has no good news on the horizon. They better understand where they are, not in a good place. Well, that's good news for the people of Iran. Uh, Dr. Ferris, I want to get, if you have any final thoughts on Iran, and then I'm going to take you I to do. a different part of the I do. Part I'm going to throw a few points. It was a fantastic conversation. And uh, let me build with, first of all, describing what the group within the Biden administration, uh, Biden team, let me call them because there are multiple wings, et cetera. The one that is very committed to the Iran deal uh, is doing, they're expressing concerns. Today, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post where they said, we are concerned that the Trump administration, meanwhile, is going to put extremely biting sanctions on Iran. That's exactly what the converse, our conversation was about. And those sanctions will make it impossible for the Biden administration, if it comes to the White House, to do anything about it. So what you were talking about, actually, is a concern on the other side. But quick points about why circumstances have changed. Number one, we are in 2020, we're not in 2015. So in half a decade, many things have changed. Number one, you have mentioned, and both of you have the, the, the roots in Iran, that the Iranian people has changed. I mean, with the massive demonstrations and revolts and bloodshed and arrests, this is still boiling. It's still out there. So it's not, we're not in 1999 or, or, or some 10, 15 years ago. So one has to take into consideration what civil society would be able to do and also the ethnic minorities. Number two, you have an Arab coalition that did not exist under uh, President Obama. The Arab coalition that was formed by President Trump in uh, May of 2017, he addressed 50 Arab and Muslim leaders, and he indirectly was addressing the Iranian opposition at the same time. His speech was that we, we need to contain this regime, we need to reverse their actions, and that Arab coalition is not going to be on board of a return mm -hmm. to the Iran deal. And thirdly, Israel has developed its position. Now, Israel has the advantage of three peace agreements. I would say there is a at least two other shadow peace agreements, one certainly with Saudi Arabia and others. There is a formation, at least crypto formation, of an alliance between Israel and about seven to ten Arab countries. So good luck for the diplomacy of a Biden team or administration if they want to come and change all of that. And as you just mentioned, and I conclude here, there will be an opposition in America never seen before. If an opposition is rising against the return of the Iran deal headed by President Trump and all these members who have been elected now to the House and to the Senate, it's going to be a different configuration. So we will add that to our analysis of what would happen if there is an attempt by a Biden team, Biden White House, to come back to the uh, Iran deal. And you perfectly segued me, as you always do. Um, Dr. Ferris and I would do uh, my weekly Fox show together, and I yeah. always love having him on. It's like he reads my mind from one question to the next, uh, so beautifully orchestrated. You hit upon what I wanted to ask you next, and that is about the Abraham Accords, about this reshifting of the Middle East that President Trump was able to pull off. It is it is incredibly, incredibly significant. It was completely ignored uh, by the media, uh, by the left, and um, it was a bipartisan um, accomplishment for the United States who brokered this deal for the Middle East as a whole, for the freedom-loving people of the Middle East, regardless of their religion or nationality. Um, and it was the first and most significant step towards an actual peace in the Middle East since biblical times, basically. But again, ignored by by um, the media and therefore totally misunderstood in this country. Will Is there a chance that this mood that has been created in the Middle East for these nations that have been currently are lined up almost to have a deal with uh, Israel? And, and whenever I say this, people will write, and I'm sure they're busy writing right now or tweet me and say, there was no war between Bahrain and Israel. There's no, there's no peace deal necessary. But what they're misunderstanding about it is that this is an 
actual meaningful deal, meaning they are already exchanging tourists and they are already exchanging technology and they will be exchanging um, apps and maybe a COVID vaccine. And it, it's a meaningful deal. It's not just a piece of paper or a fake handshake as we saw on the White House lawn under Bill Clinton between Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin. So, you know, to that end, because there's been such a real evolution in, in, in the Middle East between these freedom-loving people, is there a chance that mm. the, a potential Biden administration could reverse this and how would it look? Well, first of all, it's very important for your viewers and the public in general to understand what is the difference between the Abraham Accords and the Camp David Accords 25 years ago, half a, a quarter of a century ago. The previous accords were really between countries and organizations that were at war. Uh, Egypt was at war, Jordan was at war, the PLO was at war with Israel, and they came to an understanding and, you know, re returned land like Sinai or, uh, uh, in the case of Jordan, agreement for peace and then cessation of war. That was one. What is happening now, the Abraham Accords, are not just peace agreements. They are partnerships, as you just mentioned with the details. I can even project more than that. And I'm going to explain why I project more than that. I was a witness to the genesis of the conversations on both sides of the, the, you know, of the ocean, of the pond, between those Arab leaders and those who will form the Trump administration later. I'm talking about the end of 2016 and early 2017. And I spent many hours with the actual leaders who signed uh, on this agreement here in Washington, D.C. And my understanding is that they're coming to this perspective, not just because they want to end the state of war, the legal state of war. They are genuinely interested in an alliance. They're talking about a full-fledged, they call it civilizational alliance between these Arab countries and Israel right. and the minorities in the region mm -hmm. and the United States. And when I asked them, why did you not start before? They said under an Obama administration that wanted to, to in, enforce or impose the Iran deal on our heads, we couldn't do it. So when a Trump option came, so it's as simple as that. When a Trump option came, they actually rushed. Should it be the Israeli government or the UAE, Bahrain, and even to a certain extent, I would, I would add Saudi Arabia, but, but the, the Jordanians and the Egyptians were already ready. So my point is what has been achieved is not reversible in the region. What a Biden team or White House could try to do under the pressure, and I, that's very important, the Biden coalition has far left, and that far left is actually umbilically linked to radical forces in the Middle East, and we, it's not a secret, they, they say it, including they want to go back to a partnership with the Muslim Brotherhood mm -hmm. and or, you know, going back to the Iran deal. And of course, some of them have mentioned Hezbollah has a moderate wing and Hamas could be brought. You know, that's the constellation we, we're talking about. If they pressure the Biden White House to dismantle those uh, peace agreements, first of all, there will be a uprising in America. I mean, an un endless uprising, but more important in the Middle East, it's too late. What has happened in the summer has created an alliance and that alliance is rolling and there's gonna get more countries and it's gonna move forward in my view. Yeah, um, Lisa, Lisa, let me let me just add on if sure. I may, something, something very important that I'm so glad that Walid is bringing up, and that's a difficulty in reversing this. For so many years, there was the Arab League. The Arab League was not able to bring the Arabs together, and it was not really successful. I mean, we had personalities, brilliant personalities, Amr Musa and others, who were trying so hard to do that. Mm -hmm. And there was a secondary effect in the Abraham Accord that I observed as someone who's traveled in these places and talk to people. First of all, those who tell you, oh, there was always a relationship, they're not entirely wrong. Yes, of course there was. You and I both know that in Saudi Arabia, when people talk about Israelis, they call them our cousins. Mm -hmm. So it was not, it was not, there was a public, Nathan Sharansky does a fantastic job in the defense of democracy. He explains the duality of the mind. You have a personality inside and a personality outside. Mm -hmm. The Arab personality outside has now joined the Arab personality inside. And I say it in that order because the Arab personality outside was completely negative 
the Arab personality inside was not that negative. Mm -hmm. This is a psychological, cultural shift. Mm -hmm. Today, today the young 24-year-old in Saudi Arabia is looking to a new leader, young leader, is probably for the first time in the history of the country, is going to be in charge, is going to be in charge for half a century comfortably. If he lives as long as his uncles and his father, he is going to be in charge. For the first time, this country has a perspective beyond the shaking situation of an ailing ruler. That cannot be ignored. Something amazing has happened with the Abraham Accords, and it is something that, just like JCPOA, cannot be reversed culturally. Something right. amazing has happened, right. and I agree with Waleed 100%. Yes, I've called this, this is the real Arab Spring, because they have come to a place where they've, they've wanted this. This exactly. is, they've grown to, to look across and say, I have more in common with that Israeli than you've been teaching me my whole life. Absolutely. And those who are saying, let's return to Muslim Brotherhood, because there are moderate wings and all that. If, if Hassan al-Banna or Sayyid Qut would hear this, they would shake in their graves. <laughs> That, you know, this is not what we created. We said, look, you know, stay there, grow your wings, be quiet, and everything is happening now. Why are you, now that you have grown wings, now that you have friends, why would you say there's a moderate? You're supposed to be that sword. And no, I, I think a lot of people, like my good friend Dr. Ferris and others, are going to be reminding our good friends, respected professionals in the national security apparatus of the United States that, look, you know, be credible. Come on, please, don't call Muslim Brotherhood a moderate wing. There's no such thing. What's next? What's next? Call Boko Haram has some moderate wings in there as well. Mm -hmm. How about, how the, about the Girl the, Scouts? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Mother you know, Teresa. Yeah. Mother Teresa all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the professionals care about their, their reputation. Well, what can we? But what? what I you, hope. Yeah, no. I, I was actually going to follow up from exactly what you're saying, and, and you really hit the nail on the head with that. That's how um, these these groups are spun to believe. For example, the Palestinians. That's something that that really uh, caught my attention. Where when Kamala Harris uh, just a couple weeks ago said, one of the first things I'm going to do when I get into office is to reinstate the funding to the Palestinians. I mean, you know, and, and to the average person's ear, it's like, oh, thank goodness. I, I was losing sleep over the plight of the Palestinians, not thinking this is to fund their pay to slay terrorist program so that young children can go blow themselves up and their mothers can get money to raise the other kids to be terrorists as well. I mean, there, there, there is such a, a lack of, of clarity or, or understanding about what these groups are. And Dr. Ferris, I don't know if you remember in 2014, it was Operation Protective Edge in Israel, between Israel and Gaza. And mm -hmm. I had you on my show then, I, I don't know if you recall, but we had this exact conversation about how the leadership of the Palestinians, Hamas, the leadership there is why the, the Palestinian people can't be signatory to something like the Abraham Accords, why the Palestinian leadership has rejected time and again um, opportunities, particularly under this uh, Trump administration, to incentivize um, a better life for them, tourism for them, better infrastructure for them, um, jobs. I mean, the, the deal that the that Jared Kushner, um, the, the president's son-in-law and advisor on these topics, laid out for them was it was it was just amazing. I mean, who would ever turn something like that down? So, I mean, how how will the funding going back to the Palestinians and a warming of relations between a potential Biden administration, how will that affect the future and the course of peace in the Middle East? Unfortunately, Lisa, as for any other aspect of Middle Eastern policies, uh, many of our politicians, not all of them, but many of them, and a Biden uh, White House will have, you know, many of those uh, in, in, in power, have been advised and um, educated, quote unquote, by U.S. academia. 
by American academia, by these universities. These universities over the past at least 25 years have been either partially funded or fully funded or those Middle East studies programs. And many of the cadre of Hamas or pro-Hamas, we had many cases or brotherhood or pro-Iranian cadre have actually created a culture that any politician coming from those environment cannot get out of. So we have, a, a, we have an informational educational problem to break through, to, to change. So they think that the Palestinians are basically either Hamas or the Palestinian Authority. And all what they want is a confrontation with the Israelis over a fight over land. That's all what they can see. And that it is the responsibility of the international progressive movement to support them. What they don't know is that the Middle East has changed, is that youth in the Middle East have changed their priorities. You just mentioned about Saudi Arabia. I've seen that. I actually wrote about it in a book that you are aware of, The Coming Revolution in 2010, that actually predicted the Arab Spring, not just the first wave, the failed wave, but the more discrete waves that continued through online, Facebook, Twitter. What many of our politicians do not know is that there is a new youth in the Middle East. That's why there, this reform is possible in Saudi Arabia. That's why the UAE is moving forward. That's why Egypt basically has millions and millions of people who rose against the Islamists, even within the Palestinian community. And I know what I'm talking about because I'm in dialogue, I have been in dialogue for many years now, especially over the past five years. Young Palestinians, either inside the country, but mostly in the Gulf or in other places around the world, they're looking forward for change. And change for them is peace. And peace for them is not just to get a job, it's to get freedom. They want to be free in their own society, and they are ready to negotiate over land, over future, over economy. The problem is the partners that we have chosen, should it be you know, the radical Palestinian Authority or mm -hmm. Hamas for, for the far left in this country, are the ones who are oppressing them. Mm -hmm. Hamas is oppressing the youth in Gaza. The PA is oppressing the liberal youth in the West Bank. So I'm pretty confident that we're going to see even another revolution within the Palestinian community that would want to join the uh, Abraham Accord. And it is very smart for the Trump administration to do, to, to devise the uh, Abraham Accord first, create that Arab coalition. Mm -hmm. And within that circle, you could bring in the Palestinians, not the other way around. Yes. Kerry, Secretary Kerry was saying, oh, we shouldn't do anything before resolving the problem. But the problem, the way he wants to resolve it is to give power to the radicals. The way we're going to resolve it is that the coalition between those Arab states mm -hmm. and the United States and Israel is going to empower the moderate Palestinians. And that's the solution. Hopefully. I, I hope that you, whoever is in office is listening to you on that because that sounds perfect. Um, Mr. Kian, I want to come back to you. And you just came back from Europe and you were yes. there for, for the election. Um, interesting to see the reaction of European leaders. I mean, um, more, more interestingly, I should say, is to look at France, for example, Macron facing a severe backlash from the Arab world, um, calling for his death daily with parades all over um, different Arab um, and Far East countries um, because of his remark about Car um, the, the cartoons of, of the Prophet Muhammad, but more, more specifically, a backlash because of his very lax attitude towards refugees and towards immigration that is now kicking him in the rear end, so to speak. Then you have Germany. Germany is so excited. <laughs> you can add them to the excited list uh, to welcome in a Biden administration. Um, and then you're in the UK where they were dealing with their own Brexit issue. So what did you see? How did it feel? Let me just go back. That's a very good question. And I'll share that with you. But let me go back. I'm just so delighted to listen to Walid tonight. Um, he's a man with a lot of experience and someone with authority on subjects that I love listening to. And what I like to, to say also is a little bit of good news also, because these days, you know, everybody's, oh, we've lost it all. It's going to be reversed. No, I think there's good news in Congress. You've been watching what's been happening in Congress. You know, Speaker Pelosi almost, almost lost her job, almost, because mm. there are his own lieutenants, Hakeem Jeffries, come forward and says, 
You know, we're not here to be internet celebrities. We're here to do our job. That was so amazing to hear from Hakeem. Really, that's interesting. This is a response to the quartet who are trying to do, you know, things they like. This is America. You're elected. You work for me. Madam Representative, you work for me and you do not represent my views. America is telling him that today. And America is telling her today through the voice of a Democrat who is in a leadership position. So this is really important. I predict this wave is going to fade. We made a mistake and now it needs to be corrected. We cannot have Congress people, mm -hmm. members of Congress as activists in the interest of global terrorist organizations. There's no joke. This exactly. is a reality. Exactly. This is the reality. We cannot have our members of Congress, mm -hmm. and this is not the first time. There's been others. They, We've seen them. They come and go. America stays and stays strong. Coming back to Europe. So you, you pretty much explained France's situation and dilemma. Overall, I think 10 or 15 years ago, when people were uh, talking to Andy Marshall at the Pentagon and asking Andy Marshall questions like, what's happening in Europe? This wave of Muslim immigration, what's going to create there? I'm sure people would have said, you know, you're better watch what they're doing. Do they understand what's taking place? Mm -hmm. You know, assimilation is an issue is an issue. You bring people with a different culture with no preparation to live in your societies. They're going to create their own ghetto. You go to Paris, you go to parts of Paris that are completely lost because that's that's where the Muslim population has moved in. I'm not trying to badmouth Muslim population as culturally, you know, violent. No. I'm saying the conditions, the clash of cultures in France created that. Well, let me go to Germany for a second. Why is Mr. Heiko Moss so excited, just like Mr. Zarif, so excited about, okay, Mr. Trump, you know, there was an election, please, yes. Now, uh, thank you so much. Uh, we want to talk to Mr. Biden, president-elect. Why? Well, you know, I don't want to get into the dispute about, you know, paying their shares of NATO and 2% of GDP from each NATO country and the problems there. Forget that. Here's a live example. Why is Germany so excited? Let's take our favorite subject, trade, two-way trade with the Islamist Republic. Well, reportedly it's been growing 15% year over year from Germany. They like that. In fact, when I was working for the president, my job required me to support the American exporters. And in doing that, we were competing actually with other like organizations export credit agencies of other governments, 59 of them to be exact. One of them was Hermes Mueller of Germany. So Hermes Mueller of Germany in 2018, right before President Trump pulled away from JCPOA, had allocated 1 billion, 1 billion euro to trade, to support expansion of trade with the Islamist Republic. Well, President Trump pulled the plug, that one billion in German exports to Iran, financed by Germany's official credit agency. I'm not saying this. This was particularly reported by Funke Media Group, if I'm not mistaken. If I am, I apologize to you and your viewers, but I think it was Funke Media Group who reported one million euros from Hermes Miller dedicated to supporting German export to the Islamist Republic, it went down to $280 million. That's a 70% drop in their calculation for the economy. So why is Mr. Heiko Maas so eager to see President Trump leave office? Is because trade matters to them more than principles with their friends. Our friends have to learn that friendship has rules. You cannot be expecting your friends to provide partially for your security while you're doing trade, ignoring your friend's interests. So I'm very pleased with the policies. 
We are not an isolationist. President Trump is not an isolationist. President Trump is an equalizer. He's an equalizer. He comes in and he says, look, guys, let's be friends and let's be fair. And that is not so palatable to our German friends. Now, friends don't let friends out to dry in difficult times. So that's that's something that's going to continue. I just hope that in any administration, America's interest in national security and trade come first. Yeah, and uh, speaking of uh, rules, um, China. Let's talk about China. Um, Bijan, I'm going to stay with you for China, and then we'll have Dr. Ferris finish off the program with Russia. I know we have two big topics left, and we're almost yeah. out of time. But I want to just get um, some bullet points from each of you on each one of your countries. Um, Bijan, you're on uh, China. Dr. Ferris on, uh, on on Russia. Just what you think would be the difference between um, uh, you know a, a Trump versus a Biden foreign policy on China and Russia? Um, what are the national security issues, trade issues, um, and uh, overall, what would be the, the the biggest challenges in the way? Very important question. I, I just have to say this humbly that I don't believe Russia and China can be decoupled. They're they're playing together. They're playing together right now. And why is Russia interested in having Trump in office? Because if Biden comes in, Islamist Republic, who's been just on the strings from Moscow, constantly played with, is going to say, well, you know, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Putin, but uh, we now have a good friend of Mr. Zarif as the president of the United States. So hmm. that leverage is going to go down a little bit, at least a little bit. And Mr. Putin has to find other ways to agitate um, I, I'm hearing he's not feeling so well. You know, I don't know if you know this, but of the countries that I served the president for, uh, I served the Middle East, Central Asia, the Caucasus, and Russia, only because of geography and, and traveled there. Uh, so, you know, Russia doesn't have anything to sell. Have you ever seen anything in the stores that you bought? It, it says made in Russia. You can't find anything. It doesn't happen. Vodka, now, vodka. Vodka, vodka. Now, caviar. Now there's and competition. Caviar. There is competition. No, Russian caviar is yeah. better, Malik, okay. because because some old some old politicians said, you know, the Russians, all these factories put all that dirt into Volga, and the Russian caviar is not as good as the clean side of the Caspian Sea. Oh. So call that call that Persian pride. But I think I think coming to China, China is not after war. China just wants to feed the Chinese. China has a huge problem, huge problem. China cannot afford getting tough with Washington. First of all, we got their money and it's in a safe place and they know it. They don't want, they don't want their best customer. America is China's best customer. No wise seller ever shoots a buying, paying, customer. So anything coming from China, and I sat there and I had the uh, opportunity to be at the constructive dialogue with China, traveled there many times. I, I know the Chinese attitude. They won't fight. They just continue doing what they're doing, supporting Russia, kind of playing the, the deal with North Korea and so forth. And uh, at the end, I don't believe Russia and China are going to leave a good customer to be loyal to a very shaky government in the Islamist Republic. It just doesn't make sense. It's just like that anecdotal evidence of putting my hand outside the window. I think at the end, China and Russia are going to prefer United States over Islamist Republic in Iran. How about um, how about the Biden potential Biden administration? Will they let China off the hook? Will they will they press China? How will how will it change in that capacity? There, there will be concessions. There will be concessions. And I actually, you know, we're diplomats. We're, we're not warmongers. We don't want to go to okay. We want to start a war. First of mm -hmm. all, there will be no war with China. That, that I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, however, however, uh, a little bit, a little bit, I. <laughs> I wish I, we had more time. I would share a real anecdote with you. We invited the chairman of China's Exim Bank to our annual event, which is kind of an exciting event in Washington, D.C. All the who's who in banks come there. 
and he was my guest, actually. Chairman Lee was my guest. He was sitting next to me. He got on the podium and he said, you know, America, you sh should stop blaming China for the failure of your leaders, and you should give us your technology. Don't lock it up. And then uh, he said, we, we, we can't control it. China is a big country. You should give us your technology. When he came back, I said, but Chairman Lee, uh, you just conflicted yourself. How do you do that? Give us your technology, but we can't protect it. He said to me, yes, you're right. We should develop a 25-year perspective to address the issue of intellectual property rights. <laughs> and I said, you know, you're absolutely right, Chairman Lee. I think I'm going to advise our colleagues to develop a 100-year perspective in giving you our technology. And uh, I thought I was going to get away with it. The reporter was next to me and says, can I have your business card? That was that was not good at the end of my service. But I am not so worried about China. I believe we'll make we'll make it all work out with China. And uh, uh, I'm not worried about Russia either. Russia is a big, scary, you know, ceremonial thing. You know, uh, Mr. Putin has to come to reality and start creating real jobs for the Russians and, and their life. They have real problems, real big problems. Hmm. Walid, your take. Let me let me add. I mean, what Bijan has explained is really uh, one of the most advanced analysis because he knows he has been dealing with these people the same way I dealt directly with leaders in the Middle East. But let me add a couple points. One from a historical perspective, and I'm sure that our colleague would agree. The Cold War taught us that if you are dealing with super nuclear powers and they have leaders who are enjoying life, enjoying life, it's going to be very difficult to go for a full-fledged nuclear exchange, full-fledged war. That's what we learned from the nuclear, uh, from the uh, Cold War. Now, China of today is not the China of the 50s, the China that met us in North Korea and supported Vietnam. China today is a super capitalist organization where the control is in the Communist Party and the upper layers of the Communist Party are just capitalist tycoons. They have money. They call them the uncles. So mm -hmm. they, they are just at one inch from breaking up this party into multiple parties and they, they will look like us with, with somewhat more success with the third, in the third world. China is all over the, the, the world. I'm not reinventing the wheel. Everybody knows. They are in Asia, in Africa, all over the place, in Latin America, and also here, right? So the way China is dealing with us is that they are asserting few things on their borders. They are putting pressure, Taiwan, South China Sea. They are playing with the issue of North Korea. And the way we deal with them is what will make them react to us. Uh, under an Obama administration, basically, you know, he, he took it very easy with them. They're going to come to us. They took advantage of that. They came to us, but then they started to expand economically with the Trump administration. Here's the difference. They are dealing with a New York businessman who knows the Chinese before exactly. he became president. And he knows how to be tough with them. The difference between the when he was on Fifth Avenue or in Pennsylvania Avenue is that he has the control of the power of the United States. And when he negotiated with them, basically, he kind of got to a deal uh, end of January, I guess, last year before Corona uh, or in, uh, in February, there was a deal to be done. So China, as Kian said, as sorry, uh, Beijing said, is not going to be a strategic problem, but a competitor. It's going to be always an economic competitor. So we need leadership to deal with them. Russia is less than China. Russia has many problems, has economic problems, has borders problems, has republics that are still unsure if they're going to be in or out or right. what's happening in the caucuses. So you need strong leadership. Reagan plus, meaning Reagan plus Donald Trump, would be what you need right now to deal with those big mm -hmm. countries that are transitional between the communist time to what, what I call now the, the, the warlordish time in terms of economics. One more point, Lisa, sure. on Russia. Sure. Russia's biggest problem, in my view, is its population, its demographics. The Chechen and Tatar women are having, on average, eight to twelve, eight to twelve children maximum. Okay. On average, eight children because they want to have sons because sons are insurance for economics of the family. By the year two thousand fifty, the 
uh, forecast is out of every two Russian soldats, one would be a Muslim. That mm. is a real big problem for Russia that Russia needs to solve, and that is not stopping. So that is added mm. to the list of list of problems Russia has sure. that would prevent it from getting outside of its uh, limitations. Yeah, that will definitely change the demographic. Um, I unfortunately was not able to take questions tonight. Next time we're going to take questions and I want to get these two gentlemen to promise me that they will come back hopefully uh, end of January when we know who will actually... Anytime with you and Willie. Anytime. Uh, yes, so that I love we, it. we can actually talk about the next four years foreign policy without speculation. We can talk about who will be in the White House. Hopefully we'll have an answer by then. And I thank you both for your expertise. You are really a power panel in, in my eyes, of course, and I'm sure everyone enjoyed this conversation very, very much. And thank we look you. forward to having you back. For those of you who are watching, you can subscribe to my weekly podcast, youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari, and subscribe to my daily top 10 news email. Go to foreigndesknews.com and you can sign up there for free. Thank you so much and have a wonderful evening. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you.